0: Welcome back to the Original Gangsters podcast. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato here in my home office with my partner in crime and co-conspirator, Scott Bernstein. Hey, now. And just want to remind everyone before we get started, please subscribe to our podcast. We have a video channel on YouTube. We also have an audio version that you can find on Spotify, Google, Apple, etc. And I also want to mention to our audience, if you primarily consume our video Channel on YouTube. Just know that we have other audio episodes that were never put up on on the video channel. and you, you may find those interesting. So, we've been starting to do that. There's been some confusion. We we post some of our audio versions on YouTube, and, and people talk about, um you know, George Young. How could you interview George Young <laughs> from the <laughs> grave? <had> a, <laughs> from the grave. We had a seance. So some of those episodes are a little bit older. That's why if, if there's some confusion. Um, but then also, if you primarily consume the audio podcast. Please note that we have video exclusives on the YouTube channel, especially Bernie's quick hitters. Uh, most of those we do not put on the audio channel, so you don't want to miss those. so uh, please you know consider going back and forth between audio and video if you want to consume all the content so anyhow, uh, and follow us on social media please uh instagram um, Twitter. Facebook, etc., and uh, we're pretty excited about today's episode. We've been talking about this, teasing this for a long time. You can tell by my uh, t-shirt that I'm ready to go NWO for life. So this is our finally, we're going to do our uh, wrestling <laughs> episode where we talk about some crossover issues between the world of professional wrestling and and organized crime. And I think at the heart of this episode is going to be Dino Bravo. Yep. So um, before we get into to all that scott you want to talk about maybe just sort of like your contemporary reporting how this kind of stimulated this this idea of like oh let's finally do this dino bravo wrestling organized crime episode
1: so uh, we're going to be all over the map in this episode we're going to be multiple countries multiple eras Um, we're going to obviously talk a lot about our early childhood love of professional wrestling and what was the WWF, which is now the WWE. But uh, for people that have been paying attention to the podcast and to gangster report and to the quick hitters know that we've been given a lot of coverage to what's going on in Buffalo right now with a uh, racketeering trial about to start. It was supposed to start in October. It was actually supposed to start back in the summer. Then it got moved to October. Now it looks like it's going to be early 2024. Major racketeering, drug, sex trafficking case against the nephew of the reputed Buffalo Mafia Don, uh, Joe Todaro, Big Joe. His nephew, uh, Peter Geracy, Jr., owner of Pharaoh's Strip Club in uh, Cheektowaga, suburb of Buffalo. Um, And this is really the culmination of... Full court press by, by federal investigators these last five, six years uh, going after Joe Todaro's network. Um, and again, I want to clarify and make sure that everybody understands that Big Joe Todaro does not have a federal criminal record. He is a multimillionaire by legitimate means, uh, by his ownership of the Lenovo Pizza and Wing franchise. And he's a very prominent businessman in Western New York. But dating back to when he was in his 20s, uh, federal investigators have believed that he is a first they believed he was a member of organized crime in the uh, the Magadino crime family. They believe in the 1980s he became underboss. Uh, and then at some point in the 2000s, he became boss. According to the federal government, he denies any involvement in mob affairs. What we know for sure is that his nephews have gotten caught up Um Peter Geraci and his brother, Anthony Geraci, both got uh, nailed in federal drug cases. Peter's case is about to go to trial, as we said, and at least two people with direct connections to the case have died under suspicious circumstances over the last 18 months. Three people uh, with a connection. The third person has a loose tangential connection. Uh, two of the people have direct connections. I know this is a this is a long explanation. to, to
0: Eventually, to it does, does figure out how
1: we got to <laughs> Dino Bravo, but I just want to make sure everybody understands yeah. uh, where this is coming from. So, uh, the star witness, who uh, uh, a stripper at the club who was going to be the star witness in this case, died in August. The FBI is investigating uh, foul play. And my reporting has been able to illuminate the fact that she was not just close with Peter Geraci Jr. Uh, was alleged to have acted as his personal assistant and uh, sometimes maid. She also worked at the club, but that she was hanging around with reputed associates, possibly members of, of the Buffalo mafia and the people that she was hanging around with before she died were involved heavily in cigarette smuggling and rackets being run on Indian reservations, uh, in upstate New York. This brought us to Dino Bravo. Uh, Dino Bravo, uh, was murdered 30 years ago. Um, if you're our age, if you're in your forties and you follow wrestling in the eighties, You remember Dino Bravo, you know, he wasn't a superstar, but he definitely was a star in Canada. He was a superstar and uh, his murder in 1993 uh, was tied to mob activity in Canada, potentially mob activity in Buffalo. Some Hell's Angels were playing a role in, in this narrative as well. And I didn't really know much about the cigarette smuggling uh, racket in, you know, this pipeline that was going in between Canada and America. And I've learned that it's a, a big moneymaker out there in in Western New York, in upstate New York, and has been for decades. And, um, Dino Bravo was kind of smack in the middle of it. So, you know, we're going to kind of go backwards and then maybe you know color up with with some stuff that's going on now but i think the the majority of this episode will be about what was going on in, in the 80s and 90s with the cigarette smuggling and how dino bravo uh got involved in it and then eventually ended up dead in a gangland slain
0: yeah so let's let's rewind here and, and talk about dino bravo as as the wrestler first of all because otherwise the fact that he was killed in 93 mafia associate people might think okay well you know why is that so interesting well the fact because he was a well-known professional wrestler um he starts off um he's an uh a, an italian canadian and he starts off as a wrestler in the international wrestling territory which is out of uh montreal and uh you know now young people who watch wrestling you know wwe pretty much controls everything there's still a few independents i think what is it um AEW, I think is is one of the I don't I don't watch wrestling. E- I think ECW, more. there's an extreme something yeah, that, that's know, independent. I think, I think that's I think that's out of um I'm not sure if that still exists, but um but back in the day when Scott and I were kids, there were multiple territories. And uh like WWF back then, which was WWE now, was considered like a northeast territory. You had Mid South, NWA was um considered like Georgia, um and AEW was yeah, in Minnesota. It was Minnesota. So um, international wrestling was the Canadian territory, and Dino Bravo was a, a big uh superstar there. And he was wrestling in the WWF. Um, and I remember as a kid that he was booked as the Canadian heavyweight champion, but he didn't really generate a lot of heat. And so he he decided to spend most of his time in back in the Canadian territory. And this was around the time, I guess, 86, 87, when McMahon really started to just monopolize everything and sort of he started raiding those territories, bringing all the talent from those independent territories to his company. Consolidated. And, um, yeah. And so he did that with Canada, too. And he he signed the, Rouge brothers, or the Rougeau brothers, uh, Rick Martel, Dino Bravo. If you're a wrestling fan, you, you remember those names. And I can and- remember as a kid in Detroit, Watching CBC and watching the Canadian Wrestling Channel or the sh- the show wrestling show, and so when when McMahon signed those guys, the Rougeau brothers, Dino Bravo, I already knew who they were from from watching the independent uh, shows. Yeah, not to digress
1: too much, but also you know some or at least one iconic WW effort that came from Canada that we haven't mentioned yet is uh, Stampede Wrestling, which was out of Calgary. Yeah, uh, which was uh, the the Hart family. Oh yeah, and right. you know Brett the Hitman yeah. Hart's dad, I believe, uh, was the guy that was the promoter in that it's part of Hart, Canada. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you know Brett Hitman Hart became you know the new Hulk Hogan kind of uh, after Hulk Hogan left uh, WWE uh, for for uh, WCW or NWA yeah, he, whatever it was at yeah, the time. He,
0: it was WCW. Yeah, yeah. And, the Hart's uh, the first, the first family of wrestling.
1: Yep. So I mean, the, there's always been this. You know interwoven fabric between American wrestling and Canadian wrestling and Dino Bravo was you know at the you know really at the epicenter of it when wrestling was becoming huge I mean I can I can remember uh the 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 difference between wrestling when I first got into it in the early to mid 80s to what it was by the end of that decade I mean it Mm -hmm. grew leaps and bounds throughout the 1980s to become way more mainstream than it ever had been before.
0: Yeah. So not only was it more well-known, you know, whether you watched wrestling or not, you knew about it and the production value went up. And so, right. I I agree with you. It was, it was pretty fun to watch it develop and evolve in in real time. The crossover with MTV was a real big deal at the time. Oh Yeah. Yeah, uh,
1: the the rock and wrestling era, which was yeah, and, nice. and
0: and then there was a cartoon. Like McMahon was the first to understand marketing, right? He they had a wrestling cartoon. They knew because up until that point, wrestling was considered like an adult. It was, kind n- of it was niche. niche. It was a niche but McMahon realized there were kids like Scott and I, and, and he was the one who was like, oh, let's have a cartoon. Let's have action figures. Let's have, whatever. let's have ice cream bars and cream vitamins bar. and, and it was smart. It granola worked.
1: bars and snacks. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I got a whole generation of, of I mean,
1: Hulk Hogan, but by 86, 87, 88 outside of, you know, Dwight, Doc Gooden and magic and Larry bird and Michael Jordan. Uh, Joe Montana and, and John Elway. I mean, Hulk Hogan was right in that
0: orbit. That's totally. how big Hulk Hogan had reached by the the late eighties. I mean, it was controversial because he made the cover of Sports Illustrated, and a lot of people took exception to that because wrestling is not spoiler. It's not real. <laughs> but at that, but at that, <laughs> at
1: that point, there there wasn't the full acknowledgement of that. That's it wasn't right. until yeah. the late nineties Mark- where they, yeah. <laughs>
0: Right. So, I mean, these guys are are athletes and put themselves, you know, in, in harm's way. I don't want to. But but when, so when I say fake, I mean, core, choreographed is, is what we mean. But so there were some people that took exception to Hogan being on the cover of, of, of Sports Illustrated. So, yeah, there's no question that, that Hogan was huge. And so a guy like Dino Bravo has a choice in the mid 80s. He could take more money and go to WWF. But he's going to be a mid Carter. And he's going to be a heel, which means he's going to be a bad guy. Or he can stay in Canada where he can call the shots and he can be a champion and a superstar, but he's a big fish in a small pond and he ain't going to make the same kind of money. And this was a tough decision for him because I believe he was part owner of international wrestling and he was a booker. He was like the promoter. So this was not an easy decision for him, but everyone was joining. That, that's where the money was. The Rougeau brothers, Rick Martel, all these Canadian guys, the Hearts all went to uh, McMahon and WWF. And so Bravo does the same thing. And uh, it, was, it was a tough uh, decision for him, not finan- financially, it was a good decision, but, but he wasn't, he wasn't the, the big man on campus anymore. Well, right?
1: And I believe that he had two stints in, in WWF. Yeah, yeah, he did. He had a, his yeah. first stint in the late 70s, early 80s, I believe he won the tag team championship belt. He may have, uh, that's a good question i, I, I believe remember. in the in the late 70s i think he was a wwf a tag team champion for a second but then by like to your point then by the, the late 80s he returns he's changed some of his image you could see in the picture we flashed he had he dyed his hair blonde right um and became a heel and yes. became like part of bobby heenan or jimmy i think uh, jimmy Hart. jimmy jimmy Hart. Uh, I think he he was managed by both those guys who were kind of bad guy. It start
0: off uh, Johnny luscious Johnny Johnny v. luscious. B, <laughs> <D>, yeah, right <laughs> at, the, at the at the very beginning, and then Frenchy Martin was his manager. Yeah. He, had, he had quite a few. He was in quite a few stables. But uh, let's things.
1: people. Let, let's now. Let's people now. Let's let people understand what his background was outside of wrestling.
0: Yeah. So his his real name is. I mean, it's um he he was Italian Italian. Canadian guy. And I think his uh, last name is uh, Bresciano.
1: Adolfo Bresciano.
0: Um, Right. And so he is, uh, he happens to be related to a very prominent organized crime family in Montreal, which is the Catroni family. So we've, we've been geeking out on wrestling. If you don't follow wrestling, but you listen to our podcast regularly, you probably recognize the Catroni name. Uh, That is a very uh, like mafia royalty in 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 Montreal. Saying
1: in Montreal, saying Catroni is like saying Gambino or Genovese
0: in New York. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't know any of this when we were kids watching Tino Bravo. Why would we? Why would we? I had no idea that his uncle was Vic Catroni, who was, for all intent and purpose, the mafia boss of Montreal, and. I think it's important to get into the weeds here and point out that I say for all intent and purpose, because that was not his official rank. Uh, At that point, Montreal was part of the Bonanno crime family out of New York. And um, initially, Catroni was like the shot caller. But then Joe Bonanno dispatches Carmine, uh, uh, Carmen Galante in the, in the 1950s to basically colonize Montreal. Do You think that's a, uh, an accurate description? Yes. And <laughs> the, the, the process is
1: making contact with, with Vic Catroni. His real name was Vincent, but he went by uh, Vic. Vic. Or was it Vittorio? No, he's, it's Vincenzo. Vincenzo uh, went by Vic. He was actually a professional wrestler. Yeah, that's right. In his earlier days, went by Vic Vincent, I believe. Um, they his nickname in the underworld was the Egg. No one yeah. really knows exactly where that came from, but uh, Vic Catroni was a big part of this Bonanno Great White North expansion. It was go to Montreal, plant a flag, and get Vic Cotroni and all his guys. To come underneath your umbrella and that's what galante did and for a couple of years there galante was living in montreal yeah. and he you know they were sh- they were each other's shadows you couldn't see galante without seeing Catroni. you couldn't see Catroni without seeing galante
0: yeah my understanding is that it was a pretty peaceful amicable merger um, this was, uh, maybe a parallel to our Westies episode the other day with Jimmy Coonan and the Gambino's. I don't, I don't think Catroni was, there was any resistance. I think he recognized he liked it. I think he this liked was a it. Big opportunity for them. It right. was Joe
1: Bonanno, who was one of the original New York Godfathers coming yes. and stamping, a, uh, you know, authenticity factor
0: there, or, uh, uh, this guy is for real. He's not right. just a, he's not just a big deal in Canada. He works for us. Right. So I, I think th- there wasn't a lot of resistance there. So and I think he embraced it. So he becomes his official title is is a Capo de China. He's he's a captain. And but you know, keep in mind Montreal, there's some distance between Montreal and New York. So I think when we say all intent and purpose, Crime Boss, um, he had more juice than your average captain, I would say, in the bananos, because you know, he he's, he he's he's left alone for the most part, unlike unlike some of the other captains who are you know directly under the thumb of the yeah. administration in, in and New York in,
1: in terms of personality it, you know you research him he was known as a pretty vicious guy that that enjoyed violence um wasn't someone that used violence de- you know uh, deliberately
0: or cautiously
1: you know it was the answer to anything and everything um he was somebody that he was
0: feared, definitely feared. Yeah, yeah, and
1: I I uh I caught a, a wiretap of him when I was doing my research. And I thought this little anecdote kind of sums him up. Uh there was a this actually it was a case that made it to to court in Toronto where there was a shakedown of a stockbroker, a Jewish stockbroker in, in uh Toronto in the 70s. And uh, Johnny Papalia, Johnny Pops, who was the Buffalo mobs. Canadian capo, um, he was shaking down the stockbroker using Vic Cotroni's name. Uh, I think he, he got about a half a mil from him, or maybe more. Uh, I could be messing up the numbers. It could have been, I, I, as I'm thinking about, it, I think it was more, I think it was more of like a couple million, but whatever it was, he didn't share it with Cotroni and didn't tell Catroni he was using his name. And they wired up a a a restaurant where they met, and uh, Papaya, who was a pretty formidable mm-hmm. force of of criminality in his own right, is not someone who backed down or 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 um you know uh turtled in front of powerful people. He was a powerful person himself. you know he he makes a, a comment to Viccatroni, like, "Listen, I'm being honest with you. I'm not lying to you." He's trying to explain why Cotroni didn't realize that what Papaya was doing was on the up and up and and Katroni kind of sits back in his chair and, and gives like a chuckle. He's like, yeah, I know you're not lying because if I find out that you're lying, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you where you stand. <laughs> yeah, another amazing guy. Like, yeah. And this was just kind of like matter of factly. And he's saying this to a guy, a guy who was a killer. Johnny Pops was a killer. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, Johnny Pops' reaction was then to kind of go into I, I didn't mean to offend you Vic he, he's not pushing back on it or or getting mad at the threat he's trying to calm Vic Catroni down yeah and this was yeah. Dino Bravo's uncle this was his dad's sister's husband
0: yeah so he's um he, he's and he's well-known people in Montreal he's sort of like the John Gotti or Al Capone of you know for, for the average person and he has on the street. A- and he had
1: two brothers that were pretty active, uh Frank Big Frank and then uh, Joe Pep, uh, who were his younger brothers and and they were uh very active and 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 prominent as well.
0: And one thing if if uh Benny, if you want to put up the 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 graph of the um yeah, the family tree there, I think this is kind of interesting too, because um our audience will find interesting. So you see Catroni there at the top. There's also this like ethnic dispute, and uh, one thing that Galante and Joe Bonanno were able to do is get the Calabrese and the, and the Sicilians to play nice with each other. So if you look at that chart there, you'll see some Calabrians like Catroni, Violi, um, and the, some of these names are going to come up again when we talk about what's going on now. Um, and then you'll also see some Sicilian names in there. Like uh Rizzuto, which is again very, very prominent name right now. Uh, you'll see um Shasha there, uh, George from Canada, and shameless self-promotion. If you listen to our episode with Richie Cantarella, he and Scott actually talk about the murder of, of George from Canada. So these Sicilians and Calabrians uh don't necessarily get along, but Galante and Bonano are able to get them to to play nice with each other. But those um tensions. St- still, still exist, and they're they're going to you know, I think surface again uh in the seventies, and then and then more more recently. So it's it's just a complicated political environment there. But I, you know, I don't think Dino Bravo necessarily has anything to to do with it at that level. But it just kind of paints a picture of what was going on politically he, in there
1: when he was wrestling. He was moonlighting as like yeah. a bodyguard for some of the uh, some of his cousins. Yeah, that and were, debt collector. That, yeah, that were uh, Vic Catroni's nephews. Um, and then, you know, would I think he dabbled a little bit. Uh, Vic Catroni dies in 84. He had been removed from a lot of the day-to-day for about 15 years, I think. He had handed it over to Paolo Violi, uh, who became kind of the street boss. Violi is in a huge feud with the Rizzutos. Um, we know that Catroni, at a point early in Violi's reign as street boss, they're aware of the danger that the Rizzutos pose. Uh, I believe the Rizzutos had, had left town at some point
0: in the '70s and went to Venezuela. Yeah, and N- Nicolo Rizzuto did, right. yeah, yeah, he goes but, to South America, but uh. Because he because he thinks it's a very real possibility they're going to kill him. Right, which is
1: which is what I'm about to say. They have all these wires from '72, '73, '74, with Vic Cotroni trying to recruit uh, hitters, some of them from New York, to come and kill uh, Nick Rizzuto. Um, eventually, the Rizzutos win. The battle of power, and Paolo Violi and a couple of his brothers are murdered in the late seventies. Uh, these are these are actually the Violi brothers that we're going to talk about um, later on in the episode. Th- those are the sons. Yeah, it's okay, no worries. Um, but yeah, those are Paolo Violi's sons who will pop up later in the episode. Yeah. But uh, it doesn't look like Vic Catroni would have signed off. On no. Paolo on uh, Paolo Violi's assassination, so I think that definitely says something about where Catroni himself stood uh, in, in the mob landscape in
0: the late seventies as
1: he was ending out his reign.
0: Yeah, I think there was already the the machinations were in place to to put George from Canada as like for all intent and purpose the real captain in Montreal. And when you say George from Canada, what that really means is. The, the bananos, risottos. yeah, oh, well, right. <laughs> the risutos, and then and these are uh, the bananos, visa right visa v the ba- bananos. So it's pretty clear New York signed off on on all of that, um, and so so Catroni had, um, I think he he had lost some some juice, but he was still a respected guy. I mean, he was still a, a made guy, and 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 um, and and so Dino Bravo is able to. Parlay that into some economic opportunities, as you point out, because you have to keep in mind, you know, in the the late seventies, early eighties, those guys weren't making a lot of money, um, especially in those independent territories. So if you can moonlight, you're already a wrestler. You're a big tough guy, right? You you know you can you can handle yourself. He's related to prominent underworld figures, and so as Scott points out, he was moonlighting as a bodyguard and and debt collector and uh, making a little money on the side and. That's interesting because that came out later. A lot of wrestlers that he worked with didn't didn't realize that until he was killed, where like he had this whole backstory. Like yeah. he didn't he didn't just start getting involved with this. He and he I, had a prior history.
1: I think one of the the strands of the narrative here is that, you know, reading law enforcement uh documents related to this, reading old articles that were written about this, talking to some people uh that were you know, involved in in that uh environment. Dino Bravo had expensive tastes. Yeah. This was a guy that liked living what Ric Flair would talk about <laughs> in his in his stand-ups about yeah. Rolls-Royces and Rolex watches and yeah. beautiful women and you know the best nightclubs Jazz and
0: flying,
1: Right. <laughs> a limousine ride. Right. So uh Dino Bravo, um was able to live that lifestyle as a wrestler while he was moonlighting. Uh I, I think you can kind of combine the two incomes to, to live pretty f- high on the hog, if you will.
0: Yeah. Especially um, once he signs with WWF, then he right. then he's, he's finally making some real money, which I think there was a decline in like his underworld stuff because right he, he just, he didn't need, he didn't need to have, ti- have the time. And he didn't have the time. He didn't have the time. Right. He was, that's a good point. You're touring a lot. Right? Well, by the late
1: nineties, uh, Vince McMahon and the powers that be, or or did I say late nineties? I meant early, late eighties, early early nineties. Um, there is a altering of opinion from the, the people that are running WWF WWE of the value that Dino Bravo, uh, provides to the, uh, promotion.
0: And, and because dino brown was older at that point right and, and you know in that world it's you know out with the out with the old and and, and with the new he was like i think in his 40s at that yeah point.
1: so in 91 92 he is phased out involuntarily yeah, uh, by the wwe they they cut his contract and said we don't want to work with you anymore uh and at that point this was in 92 i believe
0: yeah i think yeah
1: um he makes the decision to dive right back into the deep end of the canadian underworld and he, i don't think he's um i mean i'm sure he wasn't advertising it everywhere he went but it, he didn't really have a uh, a a 9 to 5 job at that point i mean he he purchased some property and this is where we're going to get into the cigarette smuggling uh, purchased a big piece of property in Champlain, New York, um, and started to make connections on the Indian reservations. And this is when we're going to kind of let people know about this this giant racket uh, of, of cigarette smuggling, which is so lucrative in, the, in uh, that part of the world. And I want to throw it back to Jimmy now. One of the things that I think we both found interesting was that. Dino Bravo had a pretty easy entry into this racket because of the Indian reservations in the area playing such a prominent role. And the, the chiefs, the, the leaders of these Indian reservations were big wrestling fans. Yeah. yeah. So When Dino Bravo comes knocking on the TP door <laughs> to, to do business, they, Come on in. Let's let's talk about wrestling. Let's talk about your matches with Chief Jay Strongbow and Wahoo McDaniel. And
0: uh and, and let's talk business. Yeah, they were they were pretty psyched pretty psyched about that um to, to be able to work with him and and I also want to point out something else to, to your point about his extravagant taste. He's he's living in Laval, which is it's like the Beverly Hills of Montreal, right? Which is also very mafia kind of mafia neighborhood. Yeah, that's where a lot of other mafia heavyweights live. So he has this really uh, like kind of ostentatious you know home and and lifestyle. So when he's um, unceremoniously let go from from wwf and you know he doesn't get any other contract offers from wcw at that time wcw were picking up some of the 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 guys that were let go from wwf like even like big names like hogan macho man they don't they don't make an offer to to bravo and so he's got to figure out a way to sustain that lifestyle and so he he reconnects with some of these underworld figures and um one of um the most lucrative rackets he gets into is is cigarette smuggling. And as Scott points out, right, the the Indian reservation guys were really psyched to work with him and uh, because they were wrestling fans. And another thing that's interesting to note is it's not like he invented this racket. It turns out that Catroni and the guys in Western New York, the Magadino family, this is something that these guys had been involved in for a long time. So there's already kind of an infrastructure in place And then you add to the fact Bravo's charisma celebrity status, he's able to get himself right in the middle of it. And he was really smart. He purchased that piece of property. um, And it's
1: from what I could understand, it was in very close proximity to one of these Indian reservations, which was, uh, which served as the smuggling route and that On his Champlain, New York property, he had like a packaging and repackaging like plant where a lot of the cigarettes that were um, coming from Canada into the United States and then being smuggled back into Canada. He he was working with the Montreal group, and then he was also working with uh, a crew in the Buffalo Mafia out of Niagara Falls uh, who who handled, at that time, handled all of the uh, smuggling rackets for the Magadinos, the Nicoletti crew, Sonny Nicoletti, it's been dead for about 10 years, but uh, a very um, powerful member of of the Buffalo group for years. Uh, his dad went all the way back to the original Magadino, and um, they are using the Champlain property as a um kind of a way station a place where a lot of the the uh, cigarettes end up after they're smuggled into the United States and then they're brought to the property in Champlain either repackaged or whatever has to be done with them and then put into the machine the smuggling machine which goes into the Indian reservations and then pops out the other end in Ontario you start yes. you started in New York in like Erie County
0: uh, and then you end up in ontario yeah so one of the things to point out here is the economics of it so canada at that time and i maybe the, i probably probably still do even in the united states it's the case now really high taxes on on cigarettes and so um what they would do was sneak the smuggle the cigarettes into the united states uh, and, as Scott points out, either repackage them, rebrand them or whatever, and then smuggle them back into Canada, and then a lot of times sell them on the reservations or whatever you know you could you could buy them well i think free.
1: i think the re uh, the res rackets were yes, they were a part of the of the cigarette smuggling infrastructure, but they also had you had yes, you had cigarettes that were being sold on the black market on the res, but the res also was. Acting as this conduit, yeah. So it wasn't like all the cigarettes were being smuggled; were just ending up in the reservation. No, no, uh, uh, that was only I think a small. Yeah, yeah, they were all percentage over. of them. Yeah, and, then other, over. and then there were other, and then there are other rackets that the. At least I can speak on the Buffalo end of things. Uh, for decades, the Buffalo Magadino family has been running traditional rackets on Indian reservations, which I was unaware of until some of this but that dovetails with uh this big surge of cigarette smuggling in the late 80s uh early 90s when the taxes in Canada were going through the roof and it was really the probably the last point in in at least american history where smoking was still mainstream mm-hmm. by the late 90s it was being phased out you know mm-hmm. by the mid 2000s it was illegal.
0: <laughs> I mean, the smoke in public places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, and the taxes keep going up. Yeah, on, let on me
1: on just correct court. myself. Uh, Champlains in Clinton County. It's not in Erie, in, It's not in Erie County. I just wanted to okay. Clear.
0: So uh, one thing, another thing to point out here is the stakes are getting higher for a guy like Dino Bravo. So when he's younger, you know, his, his uncle is is a big time mafioso. So he moonlights as a debt collector, maybe a bodyguard, but now. He's he's directly involved in facilitating some pretty lucrative rackets. So, the stakes are getting higher in terms of, um, let's say, if things go wrong, you, you you may not be able to just say who your uncle is and get and get. Well, your and, and your uncle's away.
1: dead at at this point. I mean, his yeah, that's his right. his brothers are still around, right? Uh, Frank and Joe, but but Vic is gone. But Vic is gone. Yeah. Um. I think you also have a, in terms of the, the Buffalo end of this, you had a lot of protection, uh, either from uh, law enforcement, uh, you know, we, we were discussing off air and something that we should interject here that the tobacco companies themselves, the, the the big tobacco on tobacco road in, in North Carolina, RJ Reynolds, uh, William Moore, is it, uh, What's what's the the more the Philip Morris? Yeah. I want to say William William. Uh, these are these are you know the 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 McDonald's and Burger King or the Coke and Pepsi of of that industry, and they're complicit. It comes out in, in some uh, lawsuits and, and criminal uh, uh, criminal investigations and trials in the nineties. It comes out that these that big tobacco is complicit in some of this smuggling.
0: Right. And that's really interesting, because especially on the, the the Canadian side of the operation, because they realize they're losing all this money through uh, the, the, you know, the contraband cigarettes. And they decide why, if, if they're going to smuggle these cigarettes anyhow, we might as well get a piece of it because there are our cigarettes <laughs> to begin with. And so they were trying to lobby the Canadian government to lower the taxes and, and the, they were unsuccessful. So they, they were like, fuck it. We're going to we're going to start working with the smugglers. ironically to smuggle their own cigarettes back in into canada and sell some (laughs) of these guys were actually like on payroll yeah yeah the mobster yeah the
1: the well not the mob guys themselves but guys that were associated to the who were
0: answering to those mob guys were actually like had offices on tobacco road yeah the smugglers yeah part of that 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 network so and then that's how you get into like maybe some of the the, the protection by, by right. political people and well, Nick- because those those political people are bought and paid for by right. the tobacco industry so
1: back then in the 80s and 90s the there were a pair of siblings the tavano brothers who were nephews of or sorry cousins of funny nicoletti And they were the point men for the Magadino crime family in the smuggling business. They also had, uh, criminal records for gambling, bookmaking, fraud. Uh, one of the Tavano's I know moved out to Vegas when this was all going on. Bobby Tavano, who I believe is still alive. He's 80 years old right now. At one point in time, he was the head of the GOP in Niagara, (laughs) in Niagara Falls, a whole part of, uh, New York's, uh, or whole you know a little section of New York's Republican Party was in the hands of this convicted or eventually convicted mob associate. So you know that speaks to to uh some of the the protection that they were afforded. But getting back to Dino Bravo, in a short period of time, this property in Champlain uh, becomes a beehive of activity, and from what I could gather, was very efficient and was very um, the security was, was top rate and word began to spread that this is a great piece of property for all kinds of smuggling, not just cigarette smuggling. Right. That's usually pretty common in these cases. And around the same time when Dino Bravo was being approached by drug dealers, who want him to start smuggling cocaine for them using this Champlain property. There's also rumors, innuendo speculation circulating through the Magadino clan, specifically the Nicoletti crew that Dino Bravo is possibly skimming off the top from the business relationship that he has with the Indian reservation and the buffalo uh, organized crime group. I'm not sure where the Montreal group plays in to that allegation.
0: Um, and also it, it gets pretty murky because you know you have politicians, you have corporations, but as you point out you have got the Magadino family possibly Montreal, but also when you look at some of that reporting they they said the Hell's Angels were were right, somehow so he, in in into this network as well. Yeah, so the Hell's Angels played a role in it. Um a lot of
1: shady characters, and we've talked about it on here quite a bit when it comes to the you know reasons why people get killed in the underworld. A lot of times it's not one thing it's a combination of several things. so nobody's ever been arrested for Dino Bravo's murder. Um, we're not positive on a motive. We have a lot of again speculation but we know that something happened in the weeks leading up to Dino Bravo being killed in his own mansion in Laval by someone that he let into the house and was most likely watching a hockey game with. Um, there was one or two seizures of contraband in Montreal in a warehouse. I believe the first seizure was cigarettes uh, and the second seizure was cocaine. And there was a lot of finger pointing on who was responsible for the RCMP uh, coming in and swooping down and and. uh, raiding, confiscating those two shipments. And there's I don't I don't have any doubt that that played a role. In Dino Bravo being killed, I don't know how much of the pie, if you're going to slice it up, um, rests with that one situation, but it it definitely proved as some type of breaking point or, or, you know, straw that broke the camel's back because uh, within 10, 10 or 11 days, I believe he was, he
0: was killed. Yeah. And I want to just speak to sort of a criminological view on a couple of things you said. Um, First of all, it wouldn't be uncommon for a guy to be skimming off of (laughs) an operation. And then it just becomes a matter of how far do you push it? And then, you know, to to what extent are you you held accountable for it? But another thing that's very common is something Scott mentioned, which is once you have established a, a tried and true smuggling route, it's usually not long before you start smuggling other things in addition to what you started off smuggling, that's very common uh, when we look at at, at the um, the underworld. So most of the big Sicilian drug lords that we think of that emerged in the sixties, seventies, Mente, guys like that, all those guys started out as cigarette smugglers. And once you have the, the 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 routes in place and the infrastructure in place, then it's like, well, why not smuggle heroin too? Because yeah. you well, get- look at pop, look at the two biggest uh,
1: worldwide narco czars of our lifetime, Pablo Escobar and El Chapo. Where do they get their start? It wasn't in cocaine. No, they started in marijuana. Yeah, and then right. they graduated from smuggling and selling marijuana. To smuggling and selling cocaine
0: yeah because once the network's in place uh and so the there's evidence that suggests that that's what happened with with Dino you know, bravo among other people was uh why not smuggle cocaine as well and and I, I think the reason why that's significant is um traditionally not not that cigarette smuggling is is a you know uh something that doesn't have some kind of danger to it. Any kind of smuggling does. But once you start talking about the, the drug trade, usually this, the stakes go, I mean, guys start getting a lot more trigger happy. I would say mm-hmm. when you start talking about drug smuggling, Well,
1: and then missing you know. drug shipments worth, yes. you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars. Yeah. It, it, drug, drug activity in the underworld is economy. Yeah. <laughs> and when money, uh, pops up missing or product pops up missing it needs to be replaced <laughs> and in order for the machine to keep on working so um uh, there's a lot of questions that needed to be answered after this Dino Bravo obviously didn't have the right answers to these questions it didn't look like he could run to his uncle's borgata and it doesn't look like he could he could have run to Sonny Nicoletti for help either if you know and this is all speculation but if the Nicoletti crew already thinks that you're skimming and the Montreal guys get mad at you for a a, a botched cigarette or cocaine deal you don't have the the Nicoletti guys to come run to, to to protect you and your your uncle has been dead for 10 years yeah
0: yeah so um yeah to to your point there was um some some finger pointing with that bought shipment um the the one side blamed Dino bravo and said because they know they know that bravo was surveilled going to the warehouse and so they blamed him like you you were being tailed by the cops and why were you why were you you know you brought heat you brought you brought heat whereas dino bravo pushed back and said listen i'm i i dropped it off and you left it there for what three four days something like that then that that's on you if if eventually the cops Uh, raid the place and confiscate the 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 contraband so there was a lot of like finger pointing over that and i think and i i don't want
1: to disparage the the um the legacy of dino bravo or or make unfounded accusations but i know because there were two raids the one that we're talking about now about the 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 product sitting there for four days was the cocaine right but there had been a Another raid in that same early '93 period, where they confiscated cigarettes. There started to be talk that maybe Dino had tipped off uh, the the law enforcement for for some of this.
0: Well, and another again, we don't we don't know if this is connected or not, but it it certainly is in, intriguing. Another mobbed up cigarette smuggler in that same neighborhood was killed around the same time as Dino Bravo was. Yeah. So um, it, I'm not sure if it's connected, but it certainly seems suspicious and seems plausible that, that, that they were connected. So he's in the danger zone either way. So just a little bit of the forensics on, on what happened. Um, his wife leaves with the, the daughter.
1: This is March, March 10th, 1993.
0: Yeah, and they come home after midnight, around twelve thirty, and they discover his body. And Scott points out no forced entry. All evidence suggests that he knew the assailant or assailants, and let them in. In fact, he, there's no like defensive posture. He, he doesn't seem to have any defensive. Posture. He was shot from behind. Yeah, and but he, he was seemed, shot in the back of the head. But he seemed to like he was sort of lounging. Yeah, well he, the they chair. were they were they were watching a hockey game. Yeah, so he he almost certainly knew not only knew these people but felt comfortable with them. And that I think that's important because if you watch the dark side of the ring episode which which I highly recommend and they interview some of his colleagues apparently Dino Bravo was saying to some people that he may have gotten in over his head and he was fearful that that there could be some kind of retribution and so there's some evidence that he was on guard, but clearly not that night, not in that situation. So well, he trusted, and he trusted the people he let into his house to watch the game with. Yeah. So, so in that specific case, this must have been someone he was very comfortable with uh, to let his let his guard down
1: like that. I think the, I read a, a story where the police were speculating that him and the killer or killers were on a, a couch uh, watching the game. He might have been in a recliner. Yeah, I think, and the killer or killers got up, feigning that they were going to go get something in the kitchen, and came up behind him, and and blasted him. uh, He didn't. He never saw it coming. Basically,
0: no. And he was shot. It was pretty brutal. He was shot eleven times. I think seven and took seven shots to the face, and I think four to the body or, or or vice versa. I can't remember the the forensics of it. But the reason why I'm saying assailant or assailants is. In all likelihood, it seems like it was two assailants. There were there were two weapons found. However, there is one theory out there that that was by design to to throw off investigators. That it was it was one person. So we we don't we don't know for sure, but um, it, it could be it could be either way. So it's a pretty pretty brutal gangland slaying in a in a pretty affluent neighborhood, right? Yeah. Um. So and he's and he's you know still a celebrity, especially in that part of the continent part of north america he's still a a pretty big celebrity so i think it was it caught a lot of people by surprise because he was such a popular beloved celebrity I, i don't think people realize how deep he had gotten himself into the underworld, even if they heard rumors about his uncle or whatever that, you know, you, you, that's an, that can be an accident of birth, right? You can't ch- choose who your relatives are, but, but this was, you know, it became apparent to everyone that no, he was, he was, he was neck deep in, in underworld activities. And
1: I think you get perspective the further you get away from it. Um, I think when it first happened, you know, you don't, you can't contextualize it as much now that you're 30 years removed if you if you do a Google search on it, uh, a lot of stuff has been written in the last ten to fifteen years. Um, a lot less was written uh, right when it first happened,
0: yeah, 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 for sure. Um, so um in terms of who was who was responsible, uh there's different theories. Um, one theory is the the uh, Native American or Native Canadians on the reservation, although, a a pushback to that is yeah they may be involved in this but they don't have a reputation for For that kind of and they liked him and they liked him right so um then the other two or the other three culprits could be uh outlaw bikers are are at the top of the suspect list uh the italians whether it was on the montreal or the or the buffalo side and then the other possibility is just some kind of uh free agent like Someone else in that smuggling network that that he fucked over or they were going to fuck over him. So it's still pretty murky in terms of zero, uh, narrowing it down to who actually pulled this off. But it was definitely a professional gangland hit.
1: It's also interesting to you know try to tie it back into what's going on today. Back then, it looked like Buffalo LCN was working shoulder to shoulder with the Hells Angels in a lot of this. Now, thirty years later, if if you believe what's being put into uh, court documents and uh, whatnot, they're working very closely with the outlaws. Um. So you know, different different group, possibly the same racket. Again, bringing it in today, th- this this racket still exists. I don't think it's as big of a money maker uh, that, as it was back then, but guys in Buffalo, guys in uh. Uh, Ontario and Quebec are still heavily involved in, in cigarette smuggling.
0: Yeah. And if, um, I don't know if, uh, if Benny could put up that picture just to, r- r- yeah, so wrap it up up. Up here. The, 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 the Violi brothers who the, the, the father and the uncles were under that old decina under Catroni. Um, remember, they were on the outs with the Rizzutos. And once the Rizzutos became the hegemonic power in Montreal, the Violi brothers. And that that family left and um, sought refuge in Hamilton under under the protection of the Magadino family and also the uh, Lupino uh, uh, crime family in in Canada and they're affiliated with the Buffalo the Buffalo people and this is um, you know something we've talked about on the show and Scott can speak to this more but there's a lot of evidence including including wiretaps <laughs> that the Violi brothers are now very much active and high ranking members of the Magadino family in, in Western New York, Uh, FBI and RCMP, and and that part of Ontario.
1: Yeah. FBI and RCMP identify Don Violi, who was the guy on on the left in that picture um, is the underboss of the Buffalo mafia, uh, that he is the first Canadian to ever hold an administrative post in a American crime family. Allegedly. Uh, on the right is his younger brother Joe. Uh they were both I would say uh highly coveted free agents at some point um in in the 2000s and 2010s there was a kind of a fight uh who was going to claim them as their uh as their soldiers. Uh, Dom was the first one to go uh to, to the Buffalo Magadino group and then I think there was uh, a debate about whether or not Joe was going to go to the Bananos or was going to go into the Magadinos, and he eventually went into the Magadinos. Uh, I believe the, the the court documents put their makings at like Dom was made in 14, I think, or uh, 14, and then uh, Joe was made in 16, or maybe. Yeah, was-
0: and traditionally, their, their fathers and their uncles were members of the Banano. family in montreal so that's why that's why if people are i know it gets confusing but if they're wondering well what do the bananos have to do with this it's because historically their 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 father and their uncles were were members of the bananos in montreal and from my sources the violi
1: brothers right now are in charge of the buffalo mafia's cigarette smuggling racket according to the people that i've spoken to and i i'm pretty sure there was a reference in an article uh, written about Don Violi at some point in the last five years that uh, alludes to the fact that he was involved in the cigarette uh, smuggling business. So if what my people in Buffalo are telling me is true, the uh, the boyfriend and some of the social circle surrounding Crystal Quinn, who is the 37 uh, year- old stripper that ended up dead uh, in August, who was supposed to be the star witness. At this big Buffalo mob racketeering trial uh, that people that she was hanging around with, including her boyfriend, uh, work for the Violis and work uh, in in the cigarette smuggling racket within the Magadino crime family and work quite heavily on the reservation.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting that this doesn't seem to be like some kind of archaic um racket that this is still very much a lucrative yeah um uh, and and i guess with you know with, it doesn't surprise me with the taxes on cigarettes in in the united states and in canada being so high it it doesn't surprise me um i mean i i don't think we have time to get into it but there there is another interesting case study uh if people want to look up on their own johnny k9 was um another wrestling superstar who was one of these guys who was kind of crossed over with the underworld you know what and Jimmy, professional wrestling let's let's tease this out because
1: I think we should do a whole episode uh, at some point between now let's say the end of the year on Johnny canine and we yeah, could, that's we, a good could, idea. we could center it around Satan's choice. Yeah yeah, uh, yeah which is smart. the what w- well it was at one point uh the equivalent of the Hells Angels in Canada was Satan's choice. Um
0: I yeah, believe, uh, uh,
1: uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I believe Satan's choice eventually patched over to the Hells Angels. Um, I could be wrong.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure, but Johnny Canine is another interesting uh case study. I, I think that's smart. Let's hold off on that. And that, that also gives me an opportunity to give a shout out to Grappling with Canada. That's a podcast where they talk about uh you know the history of of, of wrestling and and um Canadian wrestlers. So Grappling with Canada is a podcast you should check out. And we try to get ha- have um, Andy on this, on this episode, but just scheduling conflict. So I'll reach out to him again and maybe we'll get him back and then we can do a um, just a Johnny canine episode because yeah, well, you're right. Then, you're right. That deserves its own kind of discussion. And I'm, I'm
1: kind of fascinated by biker politics in Canada in the seventies and eighties and how it was um, related or connected to what was going on in the United States with both the hell's angels and the outlaws growing at, you know, in a, at rapid clips, uh, and Satan's choice was eventually patched over, uh, to the hell's angels, uh, uh, Bernie, the frog, who I believe was the founder and one of the more, more legendary Canadian outlaws of all time, not outlaws in terms of the member of the the outlaws biker club, but uh, a, a very notorious, iconic criminal in the, in the history of, of Canada, uh, was, somebody that was being, if my memory serves, and we'll go into this in the episode, Sonny Barger was for years pressuring Bernie the Frog to patch over, and he was very nationalistic. Uh, he did not want to patch over to an American a club, and then eventually did. And I think there was some meeting between Bernie and Sonny Barger um, at that point. So, and that's the club that Johnny Canine was, was involved in.
0: Yeah. And so um, and then even shameless self-promotion, we just uh, by the time you watch this, our episode on the banditos, banditos will be available. And and they their name, they come up in that Canadian stuff, too. So um, and it's complicated because you have the different provinces in Canada. Sometimes you're talking about Quebec, sometimes Ontario, sometimes British Columbia. So, um, yeah, I would uh, I I would. uh, Yeah, let's hold off on that. And then we'll do we'll give Johnny Canine his own episode. I think it's. idea.
1: And just as we wrap up, just give people a little um, update of what's going on in that Buffalo racketeering trial. Um, the prosecutors right now are trying to move the, uh, the the trial from Buffalo. They're so shook or people that are involved in this case right now. And it's a case that's been percolating for two years um, are worried that more witness intimidation, uh, juror intimidation, possible suspicious deaths are going to happen. Like I said, you've had two people directly tied to this case, a star witness and then an unindicted co-conspirator who was a New York Supreme court judge. Then you had a third person that ended up uh, dead we're not positive it was connected, but it, it, it happened in the hours leading up to the indictment. Um, the indictment got uh, dropped it, 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 like at eight o'clock in the morning at like two o'clock that same morning. Uh, this guy that had some ties into some of the Buffalo drug world uh, ended up dying under very strange circumstances at a funeral home that he was the, the, the director of. And then a couple hours later, the first uh, two to drop in this case drops. And and we should mention this, that uh, sitting at the defense table next to Peter Geraci Jr. at this trial, the nephew of the reputed Don of Buffalo, um, mafia Don of Buffalo, will be a retired DEA agent, uh, Joe Bongiovanni, who's accused of accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of bribes to protect Buffalo mob drug operations. And he was indicted in bribery at like nine o'clock. I think it was like November 6th and six hours before that, this guy ends up dead. So three, you know, three, uh, three people that, uh, that are no longer with us. Uh, a lot of them have been looked at as suicides. Uh, two of them have been ruled suicides. The, the one that I just mentioned at the funeral home and then the New York Supreme court uh, judge was ruled a suicide. We we don't know about crystal Quinn, uh, but the prosecutors want to move the trial from Buffalo to Rochester. And that's being considered by uh, the sitting judge right now. And in their motion to get it moved, they referenced the outlaws, the motorcycle club that the Buffalo mob is most connected to right now uh, as you know, as a, a lever of, uh, uh, that, that can be maybe pulled or utilized, uh, by people that, that are sympathetic to Jersey jr. Uh, they referenced that some of these outlaws have been seen at trials in the Erie County, which is where Buffalo is. Yeah. The Buffalo media reported that. Yeah. That, uh, that they do like research or recognizance, uh, as well as, showing up there for intimidation purposes. So we should see a lot of, uh, outlaws, a lot of outlaws from Buffalo are employed at Pharaoh's strip club, uh, Tracy jr's strip club, including the the international president, uh, John Ermine, who goes by the nickname, Tommy O and Tommy O lat will end on this. Tommy O the boss of the outlaws, uh, wrote to the judge in this racketeering case, telling the judge that, Hey, Peter Tracy's is a good guy. You shouldn't keep him without bond. You should give him bond. <laughs> <laughs> this is coming from, it's just, I, I guess if that's, if that's, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Well, I, I don't know what the purpose of that really is that, that Jersey junior has your, he, and he's not just an employee at the strip club. He is the manager of the strip club. He, he used to be the head of security. Now he runs the whole club. Yeah. Like Tommy O does. I don't really know what, uh, recruiting Tommy O to write a a letter of sympathy to the judge is really going to do for you. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of bizarre. But that's where yeah. we are right now with that case. You know, keep on checking with OG Pod. We'll we'll give you some more quick hitters. The more news that comes out of it, and then Gangster report, obviously. Uh, we yeah, haven't identi- we haven't identified. Yeah, a lot
0: of, I mean, even the local Buffalo media is, they're really digging in too. I mean, and uh, Bernie, to his credit, has has broken some of the stories. Uh, he actually published it on Gangster report before the local buffalo media um got to it but uh, they've been they've been digging in on it too and uh, i'm not i'm not naming the boyfriend of crystal quinn
1: i know his name law enforcement knows his name um i'm not going to name him until his name is put into uh the public record either uh with via an arrest or a uh a summons or or a subpoena but um We'll we'll keep you updated with him. I, I've heard that at least as of a couple of weeks ago, he was dodging uh, a police interview. He was with Crystal Quinn when she died. Crystal Quinn. We should point out. Uh, we know how she died. We don't know if it was a voluntary ingestion of a fentanyl pill, or if she succumbed to her previous issues with uh, substance abuse and just took a pill that was laced with fentanyl and died of an accidental overdose. But we know what killed her was what they call an incredible Hulk pill, which is a green Xanax bar laced with fentanyl. We don't know if she took it voluntarily or not. And the FBI is looking into her boyfriend as well as the owner of the house they were at. I can't name him because he's in the press, Simon Gogolak, who right now is uh, in custody facing a drug and weapons charge, a drug and weapons indictment. But, uh, allegedly both Gogolak and the boyfriend have some affiliation um to buffalo organized crime in the cigarette smuggling business
0: um so yeah i mean uh keep checking gangster reports scott uh will report on it and um uh that's a pretty hot hot topic now and um and rip dino bravo yeah yeah and um and this was um a fun episode and uh kind of a, a just trying to find my words here because it's uh you know Debbie Downer D- Dino Bravo gets killed we're talking about suicides and suspicious <laughs> so incredible to, hulk fentanyl pills you know, I'm trying to figure out a way to, to finish this on a lighter note but i'm i'm struggling but um i mean i'm i'm still a big fan of wrestling i don't watch it any any longer but uh probably up until like the early 2000s i, I still like to go back and revisit uh, that's those, why you, those those uh matches and those uh storylines that's why youtube's so great i mean both jimmy and i we can
1: sit there for hours and be pulling up old wrestling matches from the 80s yeah it, it yeah you can, just it can keep my keep my interest for way longer than i'm uh, uh <laughs> way longer than i want to admit
0: yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I, I lost interest ar- around the early two thousands, but I still, I still have uh, a fondness for the everything, but before that. So, well, we appreciate your time and and listening, and and we'll uh, keep on uh, bringing you more content. Please follow us on social media, subscribe to our channel, and we'll talk to you soon. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato. I'm Scott Bernstein. We're out.